The next talk I, I've sort of hinted at uh, several times, uh, Joe Aaron. Joe is a professor of medicine at the University of uh, uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, we might ask him to talk about the politics in North Carolina, but probably not. Um, but, um, but Joe is, uh, as many of you know from his previous talks here at this course, uh, really uh, a leading clinical investigator and a great educator as well, and will take us through uh, Croy and take notes because uh, even those of us that went there can't see and hear all of the talks. Uh, and I know that there was a lot of great stuff, and Joe's going to walk us through that. Um, thanks, Paul. Um, things that I, I sh shouldn't touch um, <laughs> up here. <laughs> We're getting there. Well, first of all, I love, I love being in New York. It's, it's such a, a wonderful city and, and uh, wonderful people. And you guys are such terrific experienced clinicians. I, I, I'm just amazed at um, uh, uh, the, the work that goes on here and, and the dedication to clinical care. So I'm going to go pretty quickly. Um, there's time for questions at the end. Um, so uh, here's the update. Good. Now I can see these are my disclosures. This is the outline of the talk, um, and I'm going to just jump right into it. Um, so HIV epidemiology, I'm going to ask you uh, some questions uh, in the, uh, about HIV epidemiology. So here's the question. Um, is incidence in HIV as estimated, it's estimated incidence in the U.S., going uh, up or down? And you can see the choices. Um, the, the poll is open, I hope. My push. <laughs> you think we could get this right, huh? Oh, there we go. Oh, I failed. I only pushed it once. <laughs> we, we can. Do you want to skip it? We, 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 we can skip. We can skip. Skip it. I, oh, she got it. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this once, correct? With this green button. One. I pushed it once. The green. It's not on. I'm sorry, Joe. Yeah, it's okay. Keep talking. Keep talking. Anyway, so for this question, it actually the HIV incidence in the U.S. is actually going down. Um, the estimated incidence is going down. So I think that is a success. Um, in in New York, you, uh, there was an absolutely tremendous talk by. Uh, by uh, uh, Dimitri Daskalakis uh, at Croy. I would urge you all to watch it. Maybe you already have, because you are the people that are actually doing it, um, which I think is really incredible. Um, We're going to skip them. Yeah, that's good. Right there. Sounds great. So, so you can see um, that o overall uh, HIV incidence is going down. That's the total. It's going down by about 3.5% per year. Um, that's the good news. Um, the, the not quite as good news is in men who have sex with men, it's, it's going down slightly, but, but really not significantly. Uh, and really the progress, and, and um, uh, Susan will talk about this, has been in um, uh, uh, people uh, who inject drugs uh, and, 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 and women and, and um, uh, heterosexual transmission. Um, and if you look among uh, men who have sex with men, um, you can see it's actually going up uh, in some groups. Again, in, in blacks, it's about stable. In Hispanic men of sex with men, HIV, estimated HIV incidence is actually going up. So that, that's a problem. 
Um, the CDC also showed us data uh, state by state, which is the first I've seen this in terms of incidents. And eight states actually had significantly decreasing incidents. They're listed here. North Carolina is actually up there, um, uh, and as is New York. And, and the incidence is decreasing very similarly between the two states. We have actually a tremendous um, HIV uh, uh, group in our Department of Health and Human Services that's very different than the overall state's political uh, um, uh, setting. Uh, multiple states have increasing prevalence. That's not bad, right, because people are surviving. Obviously, as incidence goes down, if we can make a, 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 a greater impact on incidence, uh, prevalence will grow more slowly. But part of it is people are surviving. They're not dying of HIV. Um, there are lots of states that have undiagnosed um, and, and Texas had the highest rate. And then five states um, actually account for about 50% uh, of the incidence, 50% of the prevalence, and, and also 50% of the undiagnosed. And of course, California, uh, New York, Florida are. are. Um, this presentation from the CDC looked at um, what proportion of people um, who are on therapy have sustained suppression. And this was, uh, I think, a little bit disappointing. They looked at, um, in their data set where they have viral load data, people that had uh, two consecutive um, viral loads that were suppressed. And uh, you can see um, that only about, um, uh, not quite 60% um, had their, their last viral load suppressed. And then if you wanted durable suppression, um, and I, um, you, you actually ended up with only uh, half or so had two viral loads uh, consecutively that were suppressed. Um, so let's talk about antiretroviral therapy. We know there's been a dramatic change in how we prescribe uh, antiretroviral therapy from, from PIs and NNRTIs to, to um, integrase inhibitors. If you look at almost any clinic in the country, new starts predominantly integrase inhibitors. These are data from our site, just looking at the persistence of integrase inhibitor therapy. Um, and I don't know whether, whether I have a pointer or, or, or not. Um, uh, oh, with it, oh, on my handheld thing. Ah, this is dangerous. Ah, beautiful. So um, this shows that this is just persistence. Any patient who stopped for any reason for more than two weeks uh, or uh, fell out of care or was lost to follow-up, and you can see that even over six years, this 72 months, we still haven't reached the, the 50th percentile in terms of uh, uh, discontinuation of people started on integrase inhibitor. Um, okay. Uh, and then time to virologic failure is even longer. Uh, so so you, we just don't see virologic failures on integrase inhibitors. Um, sorry. Um, what about new agents? Uh, Trip Gulick um, is going to talk about um, the new agents that are actually in clinical development. I'm just going to mention a few uh, that are in um, earlier stages. So these are what are called preclinical, so they're being tested in the laboratory. Um, this one is a, a new NRTI. You might say we need a new nucleoside. This is actually a nucleotide. Um, it, but its advantage is that it has outstanding activity against the most resistant uh, uh, viruses, nucleoside-resistant viruses. And, and while all of us have, um, uh, most of our patients are suppressed, most of our patients don't have um, viremia with resistance, we all have, and probably you in New York, like me, have those patients that are suppressed but have a reservoir of resistance. 
And I, uh, you know, frequently am worried that at, at some point, someday, some of those patients are going to rebound and they're going to need new agents. And, and Tripp will talk about the ones that are closest, but here's one that would have value perhaps here and certainly in Africa where nucleoside resistance is very common. Um, it, would, it would have um, benefit. Um, there, even, uh, there was even a presentation on an unboosted protease inhibitor, so a protease inhibitor uh, that had a long half-life, didn't require boosting at least in uh, animal models, not in humans yet, uh, and had an excellent resistance profile, which is what you can see along the bottom here. This is the uh, unboosted protease inhibitor showing activity against multiple uh, viruses with high levels of um, protease resistance mutations. And then uh, Paul mentioned this. This is a capsid inhibitor. Capsid is that coating on the outside uh, of the uh, genetic material and inside the envelope of the virus. So, so um, this is the, the, the capsid structure here. It has to be mature or the virus isn't infectious. So this has to uh, mature. And this capsid inhibitor, GSCA1, blocks that maturation process. It also blocks this disassembly, which has to take place in an organized way. If it doesn't, the virus gets sucked into the proteasome, which is like a, a garbage disposal of the cell. And actually, it turns out the capsid is important for getting the virus into the nucleus, with, which Dr. Green talked about. So, so this particular drug worked at three different steps in the viral life cycle. It's in very early development, but in a, a rat model, a single injection lasted for um, 10 weeks. We also saw a bunch of data, a lot, quite a bit of data on new studies of approved agents. So using our, uh, the drugs that we have in different ways. Um, the largest of these was, uh, were the SWORD studies, SWORD 1 and SWORD 2. Um, these were uh, identical multi-center studies, uh, randomized, taking uh, individuals who were um, suppressed on therapy and testing whether a two-drug strategy dolutegravir, ropivirine, would be as good as continuing on, CAR here is the, the continuation of their antiretroviral therapy, so what they were on. Um, it was a one-to-one -one randomization, obviously not blinded. Um, and um, this is the first large study of dual therapy that doesn't include a protease inhibitor and doesn't include a, a nucleoside. And what they, they showed, basically, is they, uh, I don't think you could get any sim more similar than this. 95% of both groups uh, stayed suppressed. Virologic non-response or virologic failure was very, very, very uncommon, um, uh, less than 1%. Um, and, um, you know, most of the uh, non-success was due to loss to follow-up. There were more... Um, drug-related adverse events in the dolutegravir ropivirine group. Um, we thought it would be very well tolerated, and it was very well tolerated, but it was a new therapy for people who were on stable therapy. So um, any adverse event would likely be attributed uh, to the drug. Um, but you can see really um, uh, uh, virtually identical success rates. Um, and there was only one uh, patient in the entire study um, that uh, developed a NNRTI-related mutation, and that was uh, not a mutation uh, that uh, resulted in um, uh, um, resistance to ropivirine. In fact, the patient resuppressed on, uh, while continuing on dolutegravir ropivirine. So, so a potentially small 
uh, compact therapy, not including a nu nucleoside, not including a protease inhibitor. Um, this is the uh, one patient that had the rebound that had this uh, K101E mixture, uh, but, but resuppressed, and you can see the, the um, uh, resulting data. The other strategy that people have talked about is dolutegravir-3-TC. We've seen data from uh, uh, boosted protease inhibitors plus 3-TC in a, in a suppressed setting, and this was a study uh, from a group in France. This is a single-arm study uh, where they took um, patients, again, suppressed on therapy who did not have uh, resistant virus, and uh, they switched them to just dolutegravir-3-TC once daily. Uh, and the endpoint was viral suppression, less than uh, uh, 50 copies, so maintenance of suppression. And what you can see basically is uh, out of 104 uh, individuals that started uh, dolutegravir-3-TC, 101 uh, remained suppressed. There were only three, uh, obviously, that didn't. One was a virologic uh, failure, one was lost to follow-up, and one uh, modified their therapy, uh, uh, a decision by the patient and uh, the investigator. So a potential strategy uh, to be examined, and it's being ex examined as initial therapy in, in two large uh, randomized trials. So this is a, ARS, I guess, is not working, unfortunately, um, but um, switching to dolutegravir monotherapy. Anybody here switch a patient to dolutegravir monotherapy? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We, we heard about protease inhibitor monotherapy. Well, what about, what about dolutegravir? It's like a protease, right? It's an integrase, but it has a high genetic barrier, has a very high what we call IQ concentration to susceptibility a ratio. Um, but unfortunately, um, it, it, um, it doesn't um, work um, effectively. Um, here, this is a study that was done in um, uh, the, the Netherlands. Um, looking at uh, 104 patients that were on uh, combination antiretroviral therapy, and they were randomized to switch to uh, uh, dolutegravir monotherapy or have a delayed switch after 24 weeks. And the bottom line here is that um, after uh, 48 weeks, um, there was uh, substantially more virologic failure, significantly more and substantially more between the per people who switched uh, compared to a group, uh, not randomized, uh, uh, not a randomized group, but, but a matching clinical group. Uh, and their endpoint was bizarre. In people who were suppressed, their endpoint was greater than 200. I, I would never have that as an endpoint. And then these are the failures. And what we saw, unfortunately, was actually emergence of integrase resistance, which we really hadn't seen with dolutegravir up to this point, at least in patients that hadn't been exposed to integrase. So you can see that three of the eight patients actually had resistance. And then in another study, uh, this wasn't a randomized study, but this was collection of patients from uh, three different sites uh, where the clinician and the patient made a decision to go on dolutegravir monotherapy. Out of 122 patients, they had 11 documented virologic failures, and nine of those 11 actually also um, uh, developed uh, resistance. And again, you can see that the resistance mutations are some that we're pretty familiar with, uh, 155, um, 148. So these are standard kind of raltegravir, elvitegravir resistance mutations that are appearing in patients on dolutegravir monotherapy. So uh, this is really not a strategy uh, that, that should be employed. Um, what about resistance? Um, 
Is there much resistance anymore? Do we really need new drugs that, that um, Tripp is going to talk about and some of the earlier development ones that I showed you? Um, I would argue that resistance is going down. Again, these are um, uh, data from our group. What we're looking at here are two different um, analyses. This is an analysis of all the patients in our cohort in Chapel Hill. Uh, and uh, it's over, we have data on over 5,000 patients. We don't have 5,000 active patients. This is over uh, uh, almost 20 years. And what we're looking at is anybody that had a resistance test uh, going forward. And whether they're suppressed or not, we're carrying that data forward, and they only fall out of the data set if um, uh, they, they die or if they are, are lost to follow-up. And what you can see is if you look at um, NNRTI resistance, it's going down. If you look at PI resistance, it's going down. Uh, and NNRTI resistance is going down slightly um, in our population. Um, and, and this is integrased. It's, it's hardly any integrased resistance. And it shot up right here in the 2008 to 2010, where, where we, uh, uh, we recruited uh, for the Viking studies. You might remember those were dolutegravir studies of raltegravir failures. Um, but it's very low level, um, uh, less than um, less than 5%. In fact, probably new uh, uh, integrase resistance is, 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 is less than 2% in our clinic. This is a slightly different graph. This is a graph looking at um, patients who are actually viremic and have resistance. And what you can see in, in that setting, um, here are the viremic patients. Uh, 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 and you, what you can see is that then the prevalence of resistance is a little bit higher here. And multi-drug resistance does exist. This is three-class resistance here. So I, I think um, we, we, we do have patients with resistance. It's relatively uncommon, uh, at, but we, you can make an argument for needing new drugs. Uh, if you look at our most recent time frame of people who started therapy most recently uh, and are in care in 2015, um, uh, are, so these are people that were started on modern uh, uh, treatment regimens. Resistance is, you can see, uncommon. And it's mostly NNRTI resistance, people who failed efavirenz-based therapies. You can see integrase resistance is very low, uh, 1%, and multi-class resistance in people who started on modern combination is very uncommon. Um, well, what about Sub-Saharan Africa? Is that the same or different? Well, um, uh, there's always been quite a bit of concern about resistance in Sub-Saharan uh, Africa, um, uh, perhaps because there's not as much monitoring, getting out of control. And there was a very nice study done uh, in South Africa, actually showing um, very similar rates of resistance. So if we just focus on the 20%, this is the regular resistance testing. This is the uh, next generation resistance testing. Um, but if you just focus on um, the um, uh, standard sequencing like we do here, their rates of resistance were about, in, in previously untreated patients were about 8 or 9%, um, a little slightly more in recently infected versus um, uh, chronically infected. And um, actually, much like in the US, it was really mostly NNRTI resistance, as you can see, mostly NNRTI resistance. In fact, mostly K103N, which is exactly what we see here in terms of pretreatment or transmitted drug resistance. Another part of the study was to look at treatment response um, in these patients, because this was all done retrospectively. Obviously, you don't have uh, prospective real-time genotyping in, in uh, southern Africa in most settings. 
Uh, and so they looked at this next generation sequencing, and while they could find more resistance, it actually had no impact on outcome. Uh, the the, the, the uh, regular Sanger or the typical sequencing that we get um, was actually adequate, and they actually saw pretty high response rates despite the fact that patients got a Favrin's FTC and uh, tenofovir as their uh, therapy. Well, what about HIV and its complications? What did we learn at Croy about HIV and its complications? One of the things we've been waiting for from the DAD study, DAD is a large uh, a collaborative cohort in, in Europe. They're the folks that brought us that first data on abacavir and its relationship to myocardial infarction. But they had also looked at um, older protease inhibitors. They, they uh, demonstrated that uh, lopinavir ritonavir was associated with myocardial infarction. Uh, so uh, we've been waiting for them to give us data on atazanavir, which they've given us uh, recently in the last, I think, two years, showing no relationship with the atazanavir in myocardial infarction. And then finally, now they show us data on darunavir. Darunavir, uh, obviously always given with ritonavir or cobicistat. Um, uh, this is the, the population. These are the events, uh, over 1,000 cardiovascular events. Not all MI, but uh, stroke, angioplasty, endarterectomy, uh, and, and MI, or bypass. And what they showed uh, was that, again, repeating the atazanavir data, no relationship between atazanavir. This is a time-updated analysis trying to adjust for as many covariates as possible, no relationship of atazanavir with uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. On the other hand, there was a relationship of darunavir-ritonavir, a modest one, not, not a high one, a modest one, and, and, and uh, Judy Courier may want to talk about this later. This doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and uh, so there is, a, you know, modest risk of, of, of uh, darunavir-ritonavir uh, uh, and its association with uh, cardiovascular disease. I think it is important to know that these studies are imperfect. I mean, we're still arguing about abacavir and its relationship with MIs. Um, and uh, this effect is a little bit more modest. So there's definitely channeling bias here that you cannot completely control for. But I think it's a signal that, that at least is, is, is believable. Well, how are we doing in terms of um, uh, getting, uh, preventing uh, cardiovascular disease and uh, uh, statin use uh, in, in, this is in the uh, NA Accord, another large collaborative cohort. This time in, in NA stands for uh, North America, and, and Mike Sag is one of the leaders of this, this cohort, and Carrie Altoff has really done some terrific work. And what she showed is um, that, um, uh, Back in 2000, if you looked at a criteria for going on a statin, 73% um, uh, of those who had an indication based on laboratory and clinical data were actually not on a statin. We're doing much better, uh, but still, if you look across all our cohorts, 53% um, of the patients who, at least by the criteria that are collected in the medical record and, and accumulated by any accord, should be on a statin, aren't on a statin. Um, statin prescriptions have clearly gone up. Um, uh, this is the percent of patients prescribed a statin, so people are kind of getting with the program, but, but um, uh, there's still work to be done. And she looked at this gap. Who was in the gap? Well, if you were younger, you were less likely to be on a statin, even though uh, it, it was uh, indicated by uh, 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 using a, the Framingham calculation. If you were black, if you had a lower CD4 cell count, 
Um, if you were a smoker, which is a little surprising to me, and if you were receiving a PI, they were actually less likely uh, to be prescribed a statin when indicated in, in these groups. Um, so uh, we worry about myocardial infarctions quite a bit uh, in, in our patients, and we should, and we worry about whether our medications like abacavir, like proteus inhibitors, are, are causing or associated with myocardial infarction. Um, so Carrie Eltoff also uh, did a study um, uh, uh, looking at population attributable risk. So what risk factors in the population actually can account or, or uh, can you attribute uh, the myocardial infarction risk to? Um, so if you were going to guess, um, show of hands, uh, uh, one, nadir CD4, is that, that what drives it in HIV? Use of abacavir, is that what drives it? Three typical cardiovascular risk factors. Hey, you, <laughs> this is New York. You guys just know the answers before I even present the data. Um, and that's obvious, right? I mean, this is the population attributable risk. And while things like low nadir CD4 does contribute, having persistent viremia does contribute, having a previous AIDS diagnosis contributes a little, smoking, because there's a lot of it, hypertension, because there's a lot of it, and hyperlipidemia are, are in our population, that's what's contributing to myocardial infarction risk. Well, what about HIV and cure? Um, Warner's already really gone into this in, in, in uh, tremendous detail. Um, there was a study that some of us, including myself, had some hope for that was being done in Thailand uh, by, by, by uh, Jintanat Anand Warnich, um, where she um, and her group found people in the various earliest, very earliest stages of um, acute infection and got them on therapy. Um, it's called FIBIG-1. FIBIG is a staging system, but basically that, FIBIG-1 is when you have HIV RNA only. There's not even any P24 antigen detected and no antibody. Um, so these would be people that would be negative on our fourth generation that we're all using now, only positive by RNA. And she started them all on therapy. They're on therapy. Um, for, um, uh, on average, uh, for, for two years, um, uh, and then uh, uh, they just stopped therapy with the hope, actually, uh, that some of the patients would have sustained suppression because they were started so early. And um, unfortunately, they were going to do several cohorts, but they started with a cohort of eight, and, and unfortunately, all of them rebounded, some within a week. Uh, many, uh, uh, four of them within two weeks, which is what you see in chronically infected patients who stop, and a few that went a little bit longer. But basically, if you look in chronic infection, people who stop therapy, rebound occurs in 14 days. If you look at FIBIG 3 and, and 4, that's when your um, uh, 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 P24 uh, is um, uh, positive and, and, and you have an antibody response, but your Western blot has not uh, changed, uh, fully converted yet. The, the median there was 22 days. That's a study she showed this past summer. And FIBIG-1, it did increase the time to rebound a little bit, and we'll learn from this, but, but the effect was modest at best. And Paul and Warner already talked about uh, a patient in San Francisco that got treated barely when RNA was barely detectable. Uh, and there have been actually studies in monkeys that Jerry uh, uh, asked about where they actually treat the monkeys several days after they infect them, before they become viremic. And again, we, we just, that's not a strategy for cure, unfortunately. 
So the final thing I'm going to talk about is a, uh, just a little bit on HIV and prevention. There was, uh, there was a good amount at the, uh, at the meeting, but one of the most kind of interesting and perhaps um, slightly controversial things was um, uh, uh, PEP, PEP for sexually transmitted infections. So um, PrEP is for HIV prevention, and we know that PrEP is effective, and, and Susan's going to talk about that. But we also know that if you look at these PrEP studies, the, S, the sexually transmitted infection rates are incredibly high. So uh, Jean-Michel Molina uh, uh, developed a small uh, study where um, uh, patients that were enrolled in the Ipergay study, which was published in the New England Journal that Susan, I'm sure, will mention, um, were randomized, not, uh, they're all getting uh, uh, tenofovir FTC, but were randomized actually to take PEP after sexual exposure with doxycycline. Um, so they would take uh, uh, 200 milligrams of, of doxycycline 24 hours after sex, approximately, and up to 72 hours. And there was also, you know, um, depending on how much you have sex, you can't take that much doxycycline. Um, <laughs> so there was a limit to the number of pills you could take in a week. Um, but what was interesting is it actually worked. Um, and, and this is the randomization here. Uh, the men who uh, took doxycycline with it around 24 hours after sex, a single dose, actually had less sexually transmitted infections than the men who didn't. Controversial. Uh, and you might guess that it had no effect on gonorrhea because doxycycline has limited or no effect on gonorrhea, but it had an uh, effect on chlam chlamydia, um, a, a, a pretty uh, uh, a profound effect on chlamydia infection, and actually had effect on syphilis, and, and that effect was, was significant. So it's certainly something to discuss. It's not recommended. In fact, Jean-Michel said, don't do it, um, but we should, <laughs> we should at least think about it. Um, we should at least think about it. Um, so that's an overview. There was quite a bit there, and if people have questions about other things they heard, please feel free to ask about it. There, there are quite a few people that were kind enough to share uh, slides with me uh, and, and, and discuss some of this data, and um, believe it or not, I, I'm ahead of schedule by a minute, uh, <laughs> which is weir weird for me, um, and uh, I'm ready to take questions. Okay, so, that, so she can mess with that. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Can you turn on the microphone? Yeah, I have a question over here. Thanks, that was great, Joe. I saw it because I remember you showed data at the IAS USA in LA where you had so many different people on integrases, uh, your, your clinic, and, and thanks for kind of an update there with the, uh, that you, you, your group is not seeing integrase failure. Very, very uncommon. Um, what, what percentage of your clinic is undetectable, virologically suppressed? It's between 85 and 90 percent, depending on what the denominator is. Okay. Because um, I just want to point out, so it's interesting. This came up last year at the IAS conference. They, uh, Paul Sachs asked the crowd, have you seen integrase failures? And then he said to you know, a woman in Brooklyn, he said, what are you doing? Because what you'll see is, if you look at the New York City Department of Health, and I think they're going to show the slide later, the New York City Department of Health, the uh, viral load suppression dashboard, if you Google it, you'll see that. It looks at all the New York City programs. And you'll see, for example, private practice, Gotham Med, 98%. Cornell is up high. A lot of the academic programs in Manhattan are high. When you look at the Brooklyn and Bronx, Queens, 
the viral load suppression rates are 75, 80%. Therefore, 20 to 25% of the people on heart in New York City at these institutions are detectable. And just, you know, from our experience, we, what I did very quickly is looking, we are seeing failure. So, so the thing is, um, you showed the dolutegravir monotherapy data, they showed failure. The Viking you referred to, if you have viral load, they show failure. And the, uh, there was the, uh, the LA, UCLA case where the viral load failure with dolutegravir. So the question is, those people that are in that 20 to 25 percent who are on heart, who are virologic, virologic, virologically, they're not suppressed, what are we going to do about it? These are the people in the Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens. Can they be, and maybe you can talk about it during Michael Sag's thing, is that can they be on, can they be on an integrase without a boosted PI? So what's the role of the integrase when you're going to be virologically not suppressed? Yeah. Could, let me just ask um, if we could avoid using the front microphone unless you really need to. Just because we have a lot of uh, oh, lot I'm sorry, of, uh, sorry. comments. No, no. Uh, and if you, and if you if you really want to, that's fine. Uh, but try to keep the the comments really concise. Yeah, I, I think you've raised a really uh, series of important points that I hard for me to answer. I, I think a lot of those people that are viremic quote, on therapy, are not on therapy. They've been prescribed therapy, but they're, they're, at least in our experience, most of those people do not have circulating resistant virus. Some of them do, and that was the bottom panel of the slide I showed from our clinic. Certainly some people do. Um, and if you, but if you started on modern art therapy, our integrase resistance over the last seven years was 1%. Um, so, so I think... It's about getting those people on treatment that's tolerable, and we can talk about long-acting, we can talk about other ways to uh, enhance adherence, but we, we really should keep going. I just want to, uh, so I guess it would encourage the, the, the people on. that are getting failures to report them so we can see sure. that. Absolutely. Joe, um, I have a question that no one has asked, I don't think, um, but we see all the time that, you know, we just accept that HIV patients smoke a lot. Yeah. Um, what, practical things are you doing? What can be done to actually change that? Uh, you know, we, we talk about statins, uh, mm -hmm. and we should, and there's going to be a bunch of questions here about statins, but yeah. what about smoking? Well, that, that's the second thing I tell my patients, when I, a new patient, when I see them. It, in part to make a point, but in part because I think it's super important, is when you, if you take your antiretrovirals, the next most important thing you should do is stop smoking, because you're going to live for 20, 30, 40 years, and that's what's going to kill you. Um, so our hospital has a systematic smoking cessation program. We have dedicated counselors, but it's really tough. Yeah, yeah. It really, really tough. I mean, there's some pharmacologic um, uh, interventions that do work that don't interact with our HIV medications. But again, you know, the um, uh, I can't think of the non. I, I only think of the trade the name. The brand Shantix, name, because that's sorry. what we see on TV, <laughs> <Fire> right? <me>. Um, the <laughs> Shantix, I mean, it does work, but it has side effects, and, and it's hard to tolerate. It, it, it should be a priority, and I am not an expert, but it absolutely should be a priority. So before we get to the, the question from the floor, um, there, there were a number of questions about statins, and uh, you mentioned the risk calculator. Um, guide us to a Google site that uh, can 
tell us what that means? Sure. That, well, I, I think there are multiple different risk calculators. I know that Judy Courier is going to talk, talk about, about this it, yeah. this afternoon. Um, uh, in HIV, all of them tend to underestimate um, cardiovascular risk. So, so probably even more people than Carrie Altoff said should be using statins. I, I think um, there's a large study that um, Judy's going to talk about being done, randomizing people to statin or no statin. And those who don't have an indication, it definitely has an impact on inflammatory markers. Um, but I think the priority should be getting people for whom it's indicated on a statin. Right, right. And I think Judy will point out that there are sites for the reprieve study here in New York City, right. so uh, refer patients to trials. <laughs> yes, Dr. Gonzalez? Oh, uh, the CAPSID inhibitor uh, seems to work in several places. Is there any evidence that uh, it would interfere with uh, antigen capture assays like the fourth generation test? Uh, I don't think so. Um, uh, it shouldn't because the uh, P24 molecule should be, uh, in fact, re released the same way. It, it doesn't block uh, exit from the cell of the virus. Um, it, it's possible, I guess it could, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. It, 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 um, uh, it, it's, it's, I suppose, possible. I hadn't really thought about that. Joe, a question about, um, uh, first of all, one comment. Why would anyone use dolutegravir monotherapy? I think that's, like, obvious yeah. why, why you shouldn't. Um, if you can just add something even as benign as 3TC to sure. it, um, why do that? But it, as you commented, there have been now some cases of, uh, you know, induced dolutegravir resistance. And you commented that there were some raltegravir uh, mutations that popped up. Talk a little bit more about the intersection between the various integrase uh, resistance patterns and sure. how they interact with dolutegravir. Sure. Um, in vitro, Dolutegravir selects for a different pathway. Yeah. Um, and there's a 263 mutation. You don't have to remember the numbers, but, but raltegravir and elvitegravir have pretty well-defined um, mutations associated with their failure. And it was thought, perhaps, that um, uh, integrase-naive viruses um, exposed to dolutegravir wouldn't go along that pathway, because in vitro, it goes on a different pathway. And what I showed you was that, at least in these individuals that were getting dolutegravir monotherapy, um, uh, some of them went along the typical raltegravir or the typical elvitegravir pathway, which was not what we anticipated. Um, so I think we, and obviously then if you have that, you have cross-resistance, and that's a, the big issue. So um, this is a question that I guess could go to Warner if he's there or, or you or really anyone, but we've, you know, we've seen now repeatedly that when you take a chronically infected person uh, off therapy, uh, rebound typically happens in a couple weeks. And yet now we've seen from the Boston patients, from the Mississippi child uh, and others that there are some people that take a much longer time to rebound. Can you talk about the relationship between what's going on? Why do some people take right. longer? Yeah, I, I think Warner could talk, but, but I think it has to do with the size of the reservoir. And people, in, probably in Warner's group, but in Bob Silicano's group, have, have modeled this, uh, Ellison Hill and others. and and. They actually predict this kind of eight-month rebound like, like we see. It, it probably has to do with the number of latently infected cells. And actually, um, uh, the, um, in monkeys, there's actually very similar data where they can do more intensive analyses, and the size of the reservoir does appear to predict the kind of time to, to rebound. Warner, Warner's jumping up. Good. Good. I would say that you, Allison Hill's data would suggest that you can reduce the reservoir a hundredfold, two logs. That only buys you two weeks extra of rebound. 
10 to the third, a thousand-fold reduction buys you about a year. It's only when you get to 10,000-fold, 100,000-fold that, that you really start to get uh, impressive results. So we have a big job to clear, uh, you know, again, uh, I think it's going to be difficult to just solely clear and eradicate that, that reservoir. We're going to have to have immune control on top of that reservoir reduction to keep things in check. And I think that's what was demonstrated in the Boston patients. They, they, I mean, they sampled millions and millions of cells, couldn't find virus, so they had a very small reservoir. But they also had new immune systems, right? They had immune systems that were completely naive to HIV because they were transplant patients. And, and um, probably the same for that very early patient, like the uh, Stephen right, right. Paul's patient in San Francisco. Probably no real immune response. So, Werner, while you're down there, uh, <laughs> another question that, um, that there were some questions from one side of the room that didn't get over to us, so I want to give that side of the room a chance to ask your question. So, Werner, um, we hear about uh, integrated uh, HIV DNA um, in cells. And tell us, what is that the same as the reservoir? Is there kind of, what's the background here? So, probably only one in a thousand integrated proviruses is intact. The vast majority of viruses that are integrated into the host cell are defectives and will never give rise to an infectious virus. So we're really interested in the intact ones, or at least we thought we were only interested in them. Uh, but it turns out that these defectives can give rise to protein. They can actually induce an inflammatory response, and inflammation is part and parcel of, of the pathogenesis of HIV. They, as I mentioned, they might deflect or act as decoys attracting this, the cytotoxic T cells away from the cells they really need to kill. So, but what, yeah, the, the infectious provirus exists within a sea, an absolute sea of defectives. And, uh, and that makes our, my life as a scientist very difficult to find. It's like finding a very, very small needle amongst, a hu uh, you know, one needle amongst a huge number of other needles. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's not a needle in a haystack, it's, it's a needle in a stack of needles. Um, so it's We tough. see that on the streets. <laughs> um, so, uh, Joe, I think maybe the last question. Um, uh, the rates, and, and Jerry and I have been talking about this too, the rates of HIV uh, 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 incidence in young men in New York City. Talk more about the, the population and the yeah, challenges. Yeah, I, I mean, I, in, in New York City, probably someone here could t talk better about it than I could, but, 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 but nationally and certainly in North Carolina, in Atlanta, in multiple cities, it's really those young men between the ages of 20 and 30 where, where uh, HIV incidence still is going up. Uh, and it's a problem of, of perception of risk. It's a problem of a, a, a access to health care. It's a problem of access to testing. Uh, it's a, a PrEP issue, which Susan will talk about. Um, but it's that group specifically um, where incidence is either flat. Maybe in New York it's flat. But, but in North Carolina, it's continued going up. In Atlanta and multiple other cities, it's that particular group, and especially in uh, men of color, um, uh, both blacks and Hispanics. Thank you, Joe.